interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Wow, you're still here. Brave folks. Um, <clears throat> thank you for sticking around. Um, here's what I propose we do in this last session today is, um, is that I, we take some of the things we've been saying this morning and last night and put them squarely into the context of the church. Since we are all church people and we believe in the church and, uh, we've given our lives, so many of us in various different ways to the work of the Lord's church, um, how do we understand, uh, the kinds of things about uh, weakness and identity and control and and um, uh, coming to understand the Lord's love and um, honesty. How do we begin to understand these things <clears throat> in a way that is put into the context of the people of God um, together? And to do that, I wanted to look at a, a passage in Matthew chapter 16. It's a pretty well-known passage that... Um, is often called the passage, the, the place where Jesus describes the founding of the church. I'm not sure. I don't know if that's completely the right way to describe it, but it nevertheless is, is interesting for really a, a number of reasons. So um, let's look at Matthew 16, uh, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the power of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. One of the things that, this is an aside, I suppose, but one of the things that I've always been challenged by, or have been, I guess, um, in the last many years, when reading the Gospels in particular, is to look for the surprises and for the unexpected things. Because it seems to be the literary device, maybe particularly of Luke, I think, but I think it's also true in, in Matthew and Mark as well, that the, 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 some of the best of the meaning of a passage comes out in the unexpected, the surprise, the things that you don't really quite understand about a passage when you read throughout, through it, or the, the twists that don't, um, don't at first make sense. Like, for example, in verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Hmm. Isn't that what he's doing? You know, with his whole uh, ministry that he's conducting on earth? Why does he say that? And this is, of course, not the only place that he says it. It has something to do with timing. In John, he calls it his hour. The hour has not yet come. Um, the hour for his glory. But um, it's just a curious thing that, on the one hand, he demonstrates so strongly in these passages that he is the Christ, but then he cautions against speaking about it too quickly. Now, I'm not going to solve that for you right now, but I would like you to think about it, maybe as we walk through this passage a bit and see what you think might be the reason um, uh, for that. Um, I want to talk about the church. And... um, you know, when we say in the Creed, in the Nicene Creed, and I, I don't know if all of you use that in your worship um, at all, but the Nicene Creed speaks of the church as one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And we are very careful, uh, particularly as Protestants, to stay, say what we mean by Catholic and apostolic and make sure people understand that we don't mean what other people might mean by it. And there again, it's a curious thing that we do that because it's a little bit like we're protecting something that most people don't understand anyway. Um, and it needs, I think, more positive uh, explanation. So let's see about how we do that too in the course of, of this. He's really talking about the big C church, isn't he? Um, when the creed speaks of one holy Catholic and apostolic church and when the Lord himself says, you know, you are Peter and upon this rock I will... Uh, I will establish my church. He's the big C church. I often have trouble as a minister, Dave, I don't know if you do, or Larry, when you're writing an email or writing a letter or something, you know, whether you capitalize church or not. And my particular way of doing it is if it's a specific local church, I don't capitalize it unless it's, unless you say, you're saying, um, uh, uh, what, what's the name here? Grove, uh, ba- Bethel Grove. If Bethel Grove Baptist Church, Bible, forgive me. I'm so sorry. 
I should do my homework a little better, but this is this is spontaneous, so forgive me. <clears throat> um, Bethel Grove Bible Church, you capitalize it because it's part of the name, but if you said later in the next sentence, the church, referring to Bethel Grove, you wouldn't capitalize it. But if you're referring to the church universal, I do capitalize it. I don't know how you guys do it, but, you know, if you're speaking about the church worldwide. So in some ways, what we're talking about here is both big C and small c churches. And um, I think we understand our local churches, small c churches, best when we understand what has gone into the beginnings, as it were, of the big C church. And that's what is apparently happening here. Caesarea Philippi, which if you know your geography at all or imagine your little map of Israel here, it's north of the Sea of Galilee is Caesarea Philippi, pretty far north. In fact, Jesus didn't get up there very much. Uh, It's a city built by Herod the Great's son, Herod Philippi. And outside the city, there it is... um, it is tradition that outside this city there was and is a very, very significant uh, mountain that came eventually to be known as Mount Hermon. And there was a prominent cave in front of that mountain, into the mountain itself. And it is thought that this is where Jesus was teaching, was in front of this mountain, in front of this cave, and that's going to be significant because the folklore had it that Baal, the Canaanite god of death, hibernated in that cave for the winter months. So this was not particularly a place that you wanted to hang out, especially in the springtime when Baal would, you know, wake up and come out. Now, you would say, and I would say, well, no big deal. This Baal doesn't really exist. Really, it's, it's, you know, he's a false god. He does not exist. True, but not true. Like, for example, for us today, does the god of physical beauty or material success exist? No. (laughs) He's no god. But does he exist in the hearts and minds of people? You bet. So the issue, you see, is what is in the hearts and minds and even the folklore of people as they approach a situation like this. And Jesus, in this context, asks Peter, who do men see that uh, say that I am? And Peter reports the poll numbers from CNN, the latest poll numbers. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets who's come back um, to life. But who do you say? The Lord then points down to Peter again. And here we are once again with Peter. Why him? You know, how was he chosen out of it? Why did he speak up initially? You know, it's all in Peter's character. And Peter gets it right. He says, you are the son of the, what? Living God. Very significant word there. Here we are in front of the cave of death (laughs) where Baal, the God of death, lives. And Peter gets it right. You are the son of the living God. Clear contrast there. But so Peter doesn't take too much pride in his uh, little success there. Jesus adds quickly that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. This really isn't your own doing. You didn't just get this. Rather, this confession has to be given by God. 
It's a, it's a confession that is given to your understanding. In other words, no man recognizes who I am except by the revelation of God. Peter didn't come up with it himself, which is, of course, a reminder of the supernatural nature of being a Christian and of being the church. This is God's work. He's the one who makes us Christians. He's the one who makes big C and little c churches. Who do people say that I am? But Jesus really turns the table on Peter with this question I want to suggest to you. He's really, in effect, saying, who are you? Who do men say that I am, but your answer, Peter, is going to say a lot about you. That's really what he's saying. And here again, I would remind you of what we said earlier in the morning about Calvin, you know, in first, the first chapter of the Institutes, you know, or Blaise Pascal. You know, whether we start with God and move to from God to our understanding of man or from man to our understanding of God, it matters not. We're going to inevitably go the other way, uh, whichever way we start. So when Peter's saying, who is Jesus, he's also going to be reflecting on who he is. And when he speaks about who he is, he's going to be reflecting on who God is, who Jesus is. And uh, the Lord says, what may be obvious, you are Peter. But there's a play on words here that I think helps us understand what's going on. You are Petros, is the word that's used, which is the word for a very large rock. A rock um, that, excuse me, excuse me. Petros is the word for a small rock, a little rock, a little stone. And the word for large rock, like this mountain, is Petras, a different word, slightly different word. It's a play on words. You are Peter. You are a little rock, a little stone, compared to this huge stone of death that is behind us. That seems to be the contrast which the Lord is bringing out here. The mountain that is the winter home of Baal, who is all that is evil in the minds of Israelites. This is a huge boulder, a huge problem. And Peter is this little rock who gives a little confession, a little man, A Petros who says, you are the son of the living God. And in the face, therefore, of this cosmic evil, this huge rock of, of wickedness, Peter is but this little bitty stone. But upon this small stone, Jesus is going to build his church, capital C. There is, as you probably know, a good deal of controversy over that particular statement in the history of the church. Is it that he's going to build his church on Peter or on Peter's confession? And we, as Protestants, I think, are very anxious to maintain that it is Peter's confession, and it is. But how do you separate the man from the confession? This is It's not a confession in a sort of bare, arbitrary sense. It's personalized by a person. 
Your confession of faith and my confession of faith is not an abstract thing. It comes from a person, us. And, and so while we may not be very comfortable saying that the Lord founds his church upon Peter himself, we can't depersonalize the confession that Peter makes either. And if I've confused you on that, ask me a question later on. There's really more to say about Baal in order to, I think, understand what's going on here. If you flash back a bit, you remember Jesus in the boat with his disciples going over to the eastern side of the, the lake. Remember, again, the map. Here's the Sea of Galilee, <clears throat> or Lake of Gesenaret, or Sea of Tiberias. It went by different names. And most of Jesus' ministry took place over here on the western side of the lake. And that's where Capernaum and Nazareth and, the, you know, all of that was. Over on the, on the western side, uh, eastern side of the lake, excuse me, on the eastern side of the lake, um, was a place inhabited by Canaanites who Joshua had pushed out of the land. These people were not friendly to the Israelites. And in the mind of the, the Hebrews, um, neither the Canaanite people nor the Canaanite gods were very friendly, especially Baal. Baal was not just the god of death, he was also perceived as the god of nature, of lightning, of thunder, of storms. So back to the boat with Jesus crossing his disciples in the boat, going across the sea, and there's a fierce storm that comes up. And these men are fishermen in the boat, but they recognize in this storm, in their folklore, as it were, they recognize the presence of Baal, and they're frightened. They're very, very frightened. And it seems to them that maybe Baal is not very pleased with Jesus coming over to his side of the lake. And Jesus tells his disciples to row directly into the storm. Jesus is declaring that he, not Baal, is the God of water, the God of nature, the God of life. And just like we have in the Old Testament several times, we have the conflict of gods going on here. That's really what's happening. It's not just that there's a storm and the disciples are afraid and Jesus is going to teach them not to be fearful of nature. No, he's saying don't be fearful of those gods who you would imagine are at the root of evil and at the root of, of, of uh, terror and of destruction and of death. The kingdom of God moves directly in on the kingdom of evil. That's what's going on here. The kingdom of light and life is set against the kingdom of darkness and death. And by calming the storm, Jesus is declaring and demonstrating that he is the one who has power over Baal and over all of nature. Interesting. Do you know what the earliest symbol of the Christian church was? Some people think that the early symbol of the church or of Christians was a fish. It really, that wasn't the earliest. The earliest is a boat. A small boat set upon a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And if you go into large cathedrals today where they have a lot of stained glass and the stained glass is intended to tell the story of the gospel, most often, in fact, 
almost all, I've never found one that didn't, have a, in one of the stained glass windows is a boat. A little boat. It's like Noah's Ark. You know, it's like the boat with the disciples on the lake in the storm. It's like Peter's fishing boat, in a sense. These, these boats actually take on a certain meaning, a different kind of meaning, I think, um, in these stories. A small boat set against a huge storm, just as a small Petros is set against a huge Petros. And on the other side of the lake, the Canaanite people who call Gadarenes live there, and Jesus meets a man over there when they get to the shore who's very preoccupied and possessed by many different kinds of problems. He acts with a demon-like behavior, doesn't he? He runs around naked. He's scaring people. He cuts himself on the rocks. He's the epitome. He's actually the epitome of a person who is under the control of Baal. Death. Destruction. Here's object lesson number one. The gathering demoniac. He's Baal's man. Baal's got him. And Jesus is stronger than the demons and stronger than Baal. And he cast the demon from this man into a herd of pigs, which were offered then, uh, pigs, you know, were offered to Baal as sacrifices. So Jesus casting the demon into the herd of pigs is indicating his profound respect for Canaanite religion. The point you see is that Jesus doesn't play defense. That was humorous, what I was saying there about his. He didn't play defense. He went on the offense. Jesus says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that he founds. Remember where he's standing. There's likely some kind of barrier there that's sort of blocking the entrance to the cave, a gate or something. And if you were there, this gate would be perceived as the entrance into hell. But gates are not, um, are not offensive. They're defensive. And when I, you know, for many years, this is my twisted problem, when I, when I heard the saying that the gates of hell shall not prevail, I thought it was sort of like hell was coming out of that cave and was you know, moving out in offense to the kingdom of God. That's not what it's saying. No, the, the gates were defensive. And what he's saying is that those defensive gates that are, as it were, protecting hell from the offense of the kingdom of God shall not prevail. And what the implication is, is that Jesus isn't waiting outside the the, uh, cave for Baal uh, to come out. The kingdom of God goes right into the kingdom of darkness. We take the offensive. We take the initiative. We go into the dark places of life where there's hurt, where there's pain, where there's sin. We go there because it is our presence there that brings, by God's grace, the presence of the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that the church will march through the gates of hell to defeat death, to defeat hell and destruction. The son of the living God will give his life to the church 
And it is the church which will move into the power of death and overcome it. Imagine with me, if you will, for just a moment. Again, this is a right brain exercise. Why didn't it all get done when Jesus was here? I mean, the king was here. He had all the power over all of darkness, death, sin, destruction. Why didn't he clean it up then? Why are we still here? It is because, obviously, in the intention of the Lord, we are continuing this offensive effort. In whatever, for whatever reason in the Lord's economy, he intends that the church be his body, his witness, his army in the world carrying on what he began and extending it to the ends of the earth. So that's what we are to be about. The foundation of the church, then, is the suffering and death of Christ. How does the church move into the sad and mad and um, deathly places of our culture? How does that happen? Does someone have their Bible open to Matthew 16? Read verse 21, somebody. Good loud voice. Great. Thank you. Jesus says that in order for the church to do what it has to do, Jesus must go to Jerusalem and there suffer many things at the hands of the elders, be killed, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. The foundation of the church, therefore, is the suffering and death of Jesus. The church is built on the foundation of a rejected suffering Messiah. There is no other Savior other than a rejected, crucified Savior. There is no other Savior than the one who appears to be defeated. Because it appears that even if he, the Lord had temporary successes over Baal in the land of the Gadarenes on the eastern side of the lake, it appears that there is a yet more ultimate defeat that he's going to endure in Jerusalem when he meets there with the powers of the kingdom of darkness. Paul says, I did not come to you with eloquence of speech, but rather I propose to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. There seems to be something being said here about in the apparent weakness and defeat of what Christ did, there is an ultimate victory. The cross is the central symbol of, uh, of Christianity, isn't it? It's in some nations like ours, it's ubiquitous. You see it everywhere. I remember being in Japan, um, you know, a number of times and, and taking the train through the middle of Tokyo above ground and you would just go for what seemed like miles at a time and never see a cross. And I thought, you know, how strange that is. The great buildings of the Western world, the great cathedrals, are built in the form of a, of a cruciform, aren't they? They're built in the shape of a cross. So the cross is a symbol. 
But the word symbol seems so inappropriate to me, so understated. The cross is more than a symbol. It is a central principle, and it is the center, ironically, of power. And the irony, you see, the irony is that the uh, existence of your small c church is that it is founded on the principle of the big C church made explicit by Jesus' words, which apparently are words of defeat, but then become words of victory. And so what is true for the big C church is also true for the small C church. And Jesus says this. He says it in chapter 16, again, verse... uh, Uh, 24. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, it sounds, it sounds like Jesus is saying this. Is this your confession of faith? Not just your profession of faith, not just what comes out of your mouth, but are you confessing with your life that you are prepared to be this kind of Petros, this kind of bearer of a confession, a person who is willing to say that I live in a small C church and I serve in a small C church, but I'm very aware of its connectedness to the big C church. And as such, I am going to move into my church my life, my world, with the knowledge and understanding that I go as Christ went. I don't go in victory. I don't go in success. And the church itself does often not go in victory or success, apparently. Churches are small and fragile and weak. They're full of problems. You know, it's like the pastor who said, You know, I love the ministry. It's just people I can't stand. You know, people are are problems. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but in the church, sometimes the worst of problems seem to come out of people in the church. The church is not always an easy place to be. It doesn't always seem to be outstandingly victorious in the community. It doesn't always change the culture, as we talk about today. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes it just seems that we just go through our simple motions again and again and kind of hope for the best. But do you see that by the continuing work of Christ going to the cross, the church is going to the cross again and again, and in that weakness and that apparent failure, what is actually happening is that the decisive victory over the world, the devil, and the flesh is taking place. I said it last night, and I I think I said it last night. Um, Augustine called us little Christs. Didn't I say that last night? Kind of scary, actually. I, I, as I told you, I'm sort of offended when I first heard that. 
But do you see that we are little Christs and we are in little small C churches? But as we move forward together, we are a part of the big C church and the big C Christ. We are part of his body and we are doing what he did. And we are walking into the the gates of hell as he did. And we do so not displaying our strengths, but coming out of the weakness and apparent defeat, which is the way in which the world sees us. And so what is true for Jesus, you see, of course, is also true for the church, big C and small c. Again, you want to follow me, Jesus says? Good. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Forever who would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cross drips with irony for us as well as for Jesus. By loss, the largest gain is won. By giving up one's life, life will be found. This, this is, this is gospel irony. But it's in the irony of the gospel. It's in, it's in the reversals that we find both the strangest and the most beautiful of stories. For what is true of Jesus must be true for his body. His body suffered and died on the cross. And, dare I say it, his body is to suffer and die. On the cross? Well, we were there, you know, representationally. We were crucified with Christ. So in a sense, yes. But in another way, also now, as we go in to the jaws of death, we find that we go without all the answers, without all the equipment, without all the armor we need. And it's very hard. I think to grasp the significance of what is happening, the significance of what is happening in, in Bethel Grove Bible Church and in New Life Presbyterian Church, in order to understand the significance of what is happening there. I mean, it's significant. Does it look significant? It doesn't always look very significant. But it is. In order to do that, we must see that the Son of the living God gives his life, that we may become sons and daughters of this living God, and as we give our lives, we receive the life of Jesus which is given to us in the church, and this life, this life comes to us as we too go and take up our crosses. Paul says, we were therefore buried with Christ by baptism unto death. 
so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It is everywhere in your New Testament, friends. We go with Jesus. We follow Jesus. Jesus says, where I am, there my servants will be. Well, where is Jesus? He is on the road to Jerusalem. He is on the way to betrayal. He is on the way to heartache, to loss. Father, Father, let this cup pass from me. Do you think that was pleasant? Of course not. And do you think that our lives in the church are always pleasant? Of course not. Gladly, there's sweet moments of fellowship and warmth and and a sense of joy that we belong to the Lord. Our friends who, who acknowledge more of the liturgical calendar than we do, I think get some things right in this season of Lent, which actually begins this coming week. The idea, you see, is that there is a season of recognizing the pain that's in the church, the pain that's in the world, the pain for suffering, the pain for, that has to happen for sin. And then, of course, the triumph of the end of Lent. Just when things could get no worse on Good Friday, up from the grave he arises. And we celebrate Easter. So the question for every Christian, really, and the question for every church can be put negatively and positively. Negatively, how can we who share in the life-giving power of Christ's death, the greatest weakness from comes, comes the greatest strength, how can we measure the value of our lives or the value of our churches by nickels and noses? How can we measure the value of who we are and what we do by outward measurements of apparent success? It just doesn't compute, friends. It is not success, is it? It's faithfulness. Faithfulness to our true identity as followers of Christ, as those who are one with Christ, who live with Christ, in Christ, and through Christ. That is the way in which our success is measured. And we do that as we recognize that we are little stones. Just little stones. But like the little stone in David's sling, God may use us to take down a Goliath. You know, I think we have to say that positively, negatively, how can we measure? You know, if this is really true, if we're following Christ to the cross, how, we can't measure success in sort of terms of success that we might want to use. But positively, we are brimming with hope, really, in light of who we truly are. We live knowing that Jesus, the founder and the head of the church, lives with us, in us, and through us. The church is the body of Christ, we are the continuation, the extension of the incarnation of Jesus. And so we don't shrink from saying that what Jesus was to his world, he intends us to be in ours. The nature, the character, the identity of the church comes directly from its founder and its builder, 
Jesus. And every particular church is truly connected to the life of Christ. The church is a supernatural community. It doesn't look like it sometimes. It looks like a community of people that sometimes the world would look at us and say we're losers. But we are a supernatural community. That is to say, we are one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are the church as we bear together our frailties, our weaknesses. As together we say, where Jesus is, there I want to be. And as together as the church, we say, as he went, so I want to go. So, as I was saying with one of you last night in a conversation, our lives aren't always what we expected they would be. Sure, there's joy. Sure, there's goodness. Sure, there's kindness and love and and a sense of victory and wonderful truth in the, in the, in the, in the ultimate victory of the cross, in the resurrection. But you don't get a resurrection without a cross. And you don't get a cross without going to Jerusalem. And you don't go to Jerusalem unless you're bearing the cross along with you and carrying it. So don't be surprised at the difficulties of this life. Don't be surprised at your weaknesses, your inabilities, your failures. But see them, my dear friends, please see them as the very way in which the Lord intends to use you in the big C church. Okay. And there... um,